This morning's reading can be found on page 995. 995, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you, are, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. In 1967, a book was published in the Christian Foundation series. It was number 22, and it was entitled Our Guilty Silence. The series editors, in their introduction, wrote, In a day when the church's evangelistic mission was never more urgent, it was seen that the church's evangelistic enterprise was never more lacking or ineffective. The editors go on to say, The author of the book... Uh, John Stott, is convinced that the church, when it is true to its calling, cannot be a silent church. Stott himself writes, 
if the gospel is the good news it claims to be, and if it has been entrusted to us, we incur guilt if we do not pass it on. Hence the title of the book, Our Guilty Silence. Well, almost 50 years later, and I dare say such a book could be republished. It's not easy in today's climate to share the gospel. We perceive our culture is hostile to it, and yet our experiences of individuals that we talk with, that they are curious, they are interested. They're wired up the same way we are. They have the same questions that come into their mind as into our mind. Or we think we don't know the answers to all the possible questions we might get asked, and we don't, but we know enough to get started. If we don't know, we can always phone a friend, Google it, or as one enterprising house group did this week, send a text to the rector. It was a distraction from writing uh, uh, this to be able to give them a 24-7 telephone answer service. <laughs> um, I wasn't encouraging that, but only a few people have my phone. Over the last three weeks, we've tried to help ourselves end this sort of silence. We've looked at the passage, uh, at the, sorry, at the message, what to say. Uh, we know enough, as I've said, to get started. We looked at the method, how to say it. Most of us can talk about what we are interested in. And we've looked at the mandate, the authority or the backing of the Lord Jesus Christ to share the message of salvation by talking with others. Now it's a week before our tryout church weekend where we have a group of ordinands who are um, all under 30 and not, what was it you said, sort of uh, beyond it a bit or uh, whatever you were referring to us. Well of course some of us are kind of twice that age and therefore have twice the amount of wisdom and Her Majesty of course... <laughs> has three times that amount of wisdom. Um, what I dread in the next few weeks is that one day I'm going to come to church and I haven't listened to the news and she's died. And that would be awful, really, that you all know and I don't. I mean, just so if she does, please you know, tip me off in case I haven't heard the news. So um, we have a tryout church weekend where we have this team of ordinands, many of whom are known to us, coming from Oak Hill. They're going to actually be um, taking part in all of our weekend activities, which I counted up. There are 15 regular group meetings over the weekend, each weekend. And we have two extra ones. We have the men's breakfast next Saturday morning, and we have the women's evening meeting uh, in the evening. For the women's, you get the tickets via reception. For the men's breakfast, you simply sign up or email the church office soonish. So do come yourselves to these things and bring a friend if you can. Today, though, we're looking at um, what should motivate us, what should give us the desire to share our faith. Jerry Lee Lewis, hymn of uh, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. You won't know that, Steve. That's, um... Right. You won't, anyway, um, but, but others of you may well do, although he was 80 apparently last year and he came to the UK for his last UK tour and a Guardian reporter interviewed him. It's quite a long interview 
and um, he asked him about a, a famous story where apparently Jerry Lee Lewis had asked Elvis Presley if, a, if, um, if he believed a rock and roller could go to heaven. And uh, Lewis smiled at the reporter and said this. He said, I said, Elvis, I'm going to ask you one thing before we part company here. If you die, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? And he got real red in the face. And then he got real white in the face. And he said, Jerry Lee, don't you ever say that to me again. Or however, they, however he says it, right? If, I, if I'd managed to pull it off, you'd not understand what I was saying. I, and Jerry Lee Lewis said, well, I won't ever say it to you again. And he says, Elvis was very frightened. But it wasn't only Elvis who was the only one who thought about hell. Lewis himself said, I was always worried whether I was going to heaven or hell. I am still. I worry about it before I go to bed. It's a very serious situation. I mean, you worry when you breathe your last breath. Where are you going to? The actress and comedian Victoria Wood died on Wednesday. She was the same age as me. So it's a little personal reminder of one's own mortality. And then what? Well, the sheep and the goats is a simple reminder and a great motivation to share the gospel. The context, in those uh, two chapters of Matthew, 24 and 25, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time between his ascension to heaven and his return from heaven. He points out that no one will know uh, when he will return. We are, unlike the ten virgins, to be on the lookout and to be ready for his return, prepared to face him. In the meantime, we are to uh, put our God-given talents to his service. And then there's the sheep and the goats. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. Jesus takes one of the... uh, one of the Old Testament personages who is a divine figure, the Son of Man, who will descend from heaven as the King and Saviour of the people, and he applies that title to himself, which is clear a claim to divinity as you're likely to come across. And he says, 2531, at the end of this age, the end of time, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that is, as he really is, fully human, He hasn't lost his body that he had on earth. It's merely transformed into a glorified one. And his divine nature. He comes as he really is with his angels. They are the loyal spiritual beings as opposed to the rebellious spiritual beings, the devil and the demons. And he will set up his throne in heavenly glory. And all nations, that's everyone who's ever lived, will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one from another. Like, it's a simile rather than a parable, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now if you go to the Holy Land today and you travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, you'll see in a very, very arid area where you can hardly see a blade of grass, you will see somebody, a shepherd, 
leaving his tent where he's got his TV and his kind of Suzuki motorbike. Um, but the tent's probably authentic. And um, he's uh, wandering around with these scruffy old animals. And at a distance, it's hard to distinguish quite what they are. But they are sheep and goats. But at a distance, it's hard to distinguish one from the other. And during the daytime, they would keep the sheep and the goats together as they find somewhere for water, somewhere for some scrub to, to chew on. But at night, they separate them because goats need to huddle together to keep warm. It can be pretty cold in the desert at night, whereas the sheep, of course, have got their woolly fleeces on. So the son of man, the judge, like the shepherd, who at the end of the day separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right, which is always in scripture a position of favour, and the goats on his left. There will be a selection. Do you ever have that experience at school, probably, uh, when uh, the teacher chooses two captains and the captains have to uh, choose two teams? You soon find out what your peers think of your sporting prowess by how quickly or not you are selected. Well, it will be somewhat like that. So from the opening three verses, we learn quite a number of things. The first is that I am accountable. I'm free to live as I want, but there will come a time, a day, when I will have to give an account. In job descriptions that employers send out, they often mess up the words accountable and responsible. They get it in the wrong way. It's the kind of thing that upsets grumpy old vicars when they get requests for references. Because it should be that you are responsible for certain tasks and, and subordinate employees. And you are accountable to a higher authority, your boss, for those things and people that you are responsible for. So we are all responsible for using our lives in the way that God has intended. And we are accountable to him for how we have carried out those responsibilities. Next we learn that judgment will be for all people, for every nation. There are no exceptions, no favouritism, no excuses, no escape. And thirdly, we are not all going in the same direction by different roads. On the road map, there are only two very different destinations. It's possible to become utterly lost. And I want to focus this morning on two features which are particularly worthy of note. One is the basis of judgment. What is the criterion for assessment which the judge will use? And secondly, the result of the verdict. Do those with an adverse verdict, and remember here there is surprise in this simile, this story, in that those who think they're going to heaven get a nasty shock. So do those with an adverse verdict simply cease to exist, annihilation, or do they exist, but absent from the presence of God, 
In other words, eternal conscious punishment. Well, what's the basis for judgment? This is how this story is often understood. On the last day, we will be judged by how kind we've been to the poor. Verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So if we've given to the food bank, or better still, help run it, then we've done that for Jesus, even if we've got no belief in him at all. But if we're hard-hearted and selfish, well, then we're out. The verdict all depends on what we do, how nice we are. Now, of course, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is very hot on our duty to care for those experiencing hard times through no fault of their own. The widow, the orphan, and the alien or stranger are frequently cited. And we mustn't forget that. But it's not the point of the story that Jesus tells here. If it was, that would make the rest of the New Testament irrelevant. After all, why would Jesus need to die on the cross if this is all we have to do? Why is it so vital to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved if we can save ourselves just by being nice people who never did any harm to anyone, which you'll hear frequently at funerals? The key to understanding what the criterion for assessment is, is in verse 40 and in its opposite, verse 45. Verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And conversely, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now sometimes in the New Testament, brothers are meant literally, where Jesus has half-brothers and sisters. We get a hint of that. One of them is called James, we know, but there's more than one we know from the incident in Matthew 12. But it's more used of, for example, in 12.50, of those who... uh, do the will of his Father in heaven. They are said to be his brothers and sisters. They are members of the family of God, not necessarily his biological family. So the criterion is this. How someone treats a Christian is a reflection of how they treat Christ. Their attitude and actions towards the followers of Christ are indicative of their attitude and actions towards Christ himself. Whether that's in what we do to the least of the brothers, acts of commission, or what we don't do, acts of omission. We are actually doing or not doing to Christ himself. 
Do you remember Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road? It's in Acts chapter 9. What did Jesus say to Saul as he was before he became a Christian? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had spent the previous five years between about 30 AD and 35 AD when this happened roughly, dragging, you know, tracking down where the Christian, these new Christian communities were meeting, dragging off the leaders, and we have one report where he was an accessory to the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So identified and united with Christians is Christ that he regards an attack on them as an attack on him. An act of kindness to them is an act of kindness to him. Christ is so identified with his people and they are so united with him that the church is said to be the body of Christ. Although since 30 AD, Christ ascended to heaven and is seen no more. But he is nonetheless here. He is here incognito, if you like, through his spirit in the lives of his people who together constitute his church. So he is seen, in inverted commas, in them, or should be. And people's regard of them is a measure of their regard for him. That's why, as a church, we um, actually give money to organisations that help the persecuted church, which in places of the world today is severely persecuted. The money helps with their advocacy. It supplies food and shelter and Bibles and other Christian literature. That's why, as a church, many individuals help and support others For example, when a family has a baby, or when there's a church wedding, or in times of sickness or bereavement. Interestingly, there's a strong element of surprise, as I've said, when the king, the son of man, lists the good done and not done. I mean, have you ever had the experience of being thanked by somebody many years after for some act of kindness that they've probably long forgotten about, but you registered it. So I got that the wrong way around. Um, imagine you, someone comes up to you and says, thank you very much for something or other that they did for you, which they're likely to have forgotten about, but you remember, you register it, you appreciate it, you are grateful for it. I can remember such things. When Cathy and I first came to... Uh, Basingstoke to St Mary's here. Anna was uh, three weeks old and uh, we lived in what is now the annex. And some kind soul had paid for a gas fire to be put in because it was all louvered windows, which was a bit chilly. And just shortly after we arrived, another one came um, with a nice little box of goodies for Cathy and Anna. And both of you are still with us. Now you may have forgotten it, but I haven't, and I don't think Cathy has. It was an expression of kindness displayed by Christians to other Christians that reflected your attitude to Christ. It's, 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 it's being um, 
un, it's being selflessly, it's being um, unselfconsciously serving other Christians. Perhaps you've never realized quite how closely the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself with his people. What you do for them, you do for him. Not for status, not for recognition, not for gain. Just an act of self-forgetfulness, of love and service to brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one of the things that we're supposed to be about in that period between now and when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And finally, the result of the verdict, Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now we've seen how one's attitude to the king determines one's destiny. So his presence or his absence is the main characteristic of the outcome. So let's see where the two groups end up and who they end up with. Verse 34, to those on his right who he rewards. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. In other words, come and share the life of the kingdom where Jesus rules without rival and challenge as the king. To be blessed is to share in the life of the Father and the Son here. And our inheritance is eternal life. Then verse 40, to those on his left who he punishes, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now to be present, to be banished uh, from his presence forever and to share the same fate as the devil and the fallen angels in a prepared, a pre-prepared situation. Now the big debate in recent years is this, separation from the, God, from, uh, the presence of God, its effect and its experience the effect of the verdict lasts forever. But it's questioned whether the experience of the verdict of separation lasts forever. Or does it only last for a limited period of time? The unrighteous are somewhere between their death and some time after the judgment are annihilated, as the imagery of fire might suggest. The traditional view that both the effect and the experience of separation are an eternal conscious existence has been the view, the do, by far the most dominant view until comparatively perhaps the last hundred years. Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, the great amongst the theologians take the traditional view. It's more recently supported by people like Gerald Bray, David Pawson, Donald MacLeod, Jim Packer, Don Carson. The more recent view, that while the effects last forever and the experience does not, is what's called annihilationism. Sinners cease 
to exist. And that view is held by somebody, uh, unfortunately, called Fudge, who's done a lot of the, uh, the work on it, but also by um, some well-known Anglicans like John Wenham, John Stott, and Michael Green, the last, of, the last three of whom I've known personally to varying degrees and have great respect for. But I think on this, they're wrong. They usually are motivated by the thought that God's justice can't demand infinite punishment for finite sins. But sin against an infinitely glorious God, though committed by finite human beings, is infinitely evil and so deserves infinite punishment. Let me very briefly explain some of the reasons why Personally, I opt for the traditional view. There are four, but there are far more than that. The first is in verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's obviously some symbolism here because you can't have darkness and fire, can you? But why is hell already in existence? The answer is, that angels are immortal creatures and the fallen ones need to be isolated from the rest of creation. And then we have Revelation 20.10 which has the devil being tormented day and night forever and ever. So presumably the same fate that awaits, uh, that awaits him awaits those who follow him. Just as those who follow Christ share his good fortune. And thirdly, what clinches it for me is that in this passage, eternal punishment parallels eternal life, and eternal must have the same meaning in both phrases. If reward lasts forever, so does punishment last forever. Jesus said, there was a fate worse than death. I'm not sure that annihilation, which is elimination, is that. But everlasting conscious punishment certainly is. So on that last day, on the day of judgment, there are just two outcomes, heaven and hell, one with Christ and one without Christ, and it's forever, and it's awful. But in a sense, God gives us what we want. If we want to live for ourselves, we are allowed to. If we want to live for him and with him, we will. Heaven will be better than we can possibly imagine and hell will be worse than we can possibly conceive. Well, how does this motivate us to share the gospel? Well, positively, we should, out of gratitude, be motivated to share it with other people. We have been blessed, we should bless others. But secondly, eternal punishment should motivate us because we want people to escape it rather than experience it, and they do so by faith in Christ. In that Jerry Lee Lewis interview in The Guardian, the historian T.C. Smout attributes the, dis- the, the decline in Scottish church-going to the change in emphasis from punishment to love. 
the Christian tone began to falter, so the article says. Smout says, Christianity, from the beginning, had centred on the afterlife. If the church was vague about it, men reached their own conclusions. If there was a God, he was good. If he was good, he would send you to heaven. It will be all right in the end. Smout writes that it was this, quote, homespun logic that caused, he says, the death of hell and the emptying of the pews. We all have one life. During that one life, we are faced with a choice to turn to Christ, to connect with him, and we live with him forever. To stay away from him, remain detached, well, that will also be for now and forever. Let us help people choose eternal life with Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do especially pray that this would register in our minds that there are only two possible eternal destinies, one with you and one excluded from you. And the choice is ours and everyone's. We pray that we might help others make the right choice and turn and follow you now and forever. Amen.